We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Seems Like Old Times on December 19, 1980. It was written by Neil Simon, directed by Jay Sandrich, and released by Columbia Pictures. The movie has been described as a loose remake of 1942's talk of the town but the case is fairly slim in that film the woman and fugitive are not formerly married and he's just a guy that she sympathizes with who stays in their garage while the cops are seeking him out i don't think it's close enough to be a remake yeah like some people say early publicity announced marcia mason neil simon's wife and burt reynolds in the lead roles of the film i assume burt reynolds would be the chevy chase part I would think so. And it makes more sense to me that he would be the person on the run from the law. Yeah. Uh, But that obviously did not come to be. (laughs) I don't know if Marsha Mason was ever actually attached to the film or if that was just something they leaked because they hadn't had a female attached to the film. And Neil Simon was like, oh, just put my wife's name in the release. Oh, yeah. Paul McCartney wrote and recorded an ultimately unused song for the title track of the film, as he does for many Chevy Chase films for some reason. I guess they were pretty good friends. Yeah, well, I mean, they were in that the video together for uh, If You Be My Bodyguard. Right, and he was also in, we had uh, a couple Paul McCartney songs in Oh, oh Heavenly Dog earlier this mm-hmm. year. Yeah. And he does the Spies Like Us theme. Yeah. So they're, they're familiar. BFFs. But I want to know what the song was. Did he ever release it? He did. Let me play a chunk for you now. The other day I met someone I had known in another lifetime. Old puzzle pieces lost without a trace fell into place in my mind. But we both knew what we were getting into. And we didn't want to stop. Oh, we wouldn't want to miss it Cause it seems like old times So like long ago What do you think about that? It sounded like a song. <laughs> now, uh, do give me a reaction for if it didn't sound like a song. Ugh. Perfect. <laughs> I'm not going to cut anything in there. <laughs> This episode is going great for Richard. (laughs) Richard couldn't hear the song. That's why his review was so vague. (laughs) This is the first of two Neil Simon written films starring Goldie Hawn before the Out of Towners remake in 1999, which we discovered is better than the original, which we reviewed for Patreon. The original is infuriatingly awful. It's difficult. But the, the new one's all right. Yeah. I never saw the new one, but I agree with you. Well, it's Steve Martin. Yeah, I, I get that he's probably good. But I can't say for sure that it was better. 
Goldie Hawn was still in the process of divorcing her husband, Kate Hudson's father, and overseeing Post on Private Benjamin, which she starred in and executive produced throughout the production of this film. So she was busy, but she made it look easy. She does a good job. Uh, Charles Grodin received a Razzie for Worst Supporting Actor for his role as Ira J. Parks. I don't agree with that yeah. at all. Not even just the nomination. He took it home. What? He got the supporting Razzie. That's dumb. No, yeah. I don't think that's necessary. I think if you're going to blame anybody here, it's the writers. And probably <laughs> even specifically Neil Simon just not being as great as everyone says. This um, film was not that bad. We're going to have a conversation. Ready? <laughs> Here we go. We open with aerial photography of waves crashing on rocks off the coast of California somewhere around Big Sur. The camera flies up on a house on the cliffs overlooking the water and we see Chevy Chase as Nicholas Gardenia sitting at a desk on a balcony facing the ocean. He heads inside to grab another beer and as he does so we keep seeing heads of strangers popping up in the window behind him. Someone knocks at his door. A pair of men claim to have car trouble and ask to use his phone, but Nicholas says he doesn't have one. Oh, that's okay. We don't have a car. <laughs> I don't get it. One of the guys pulls a gun. This cleared up for you? No, I'm afraid not. You see, I'm blind. The two men kidnap Nicholas. I mean, he's gay. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that clip? No. There's, it's like... Right after the break, we're going to interview Eric Weihenmayer, who climbed the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. But... He's gay. I mean, he's gay. Excuse me. He's blind. <laughs> <laughs> the two men kidnap Nicholas in his own truck and force him to drive up PCH toward Carmel. They ask what he was doing in the cabin, and he says he was working on a book. They tell him that they're headed to the big bank in Carmel and that Nick's going to rob it. They pull up to a rare full-service station in California, and the gas station attendant asks Nicholas what they need. The armed men keep contradicting everything he says. Well, it be, boys. Fill it up. Fill it up. Regular, premium. Regular. Premium. Premium. Be fine. Want me to check the hood? Yeah. No. No, it's already been checked, thanks. With a gun in his ribs, Nicholas tries to discreetly get the gas station attendant's attention by grabbing at him while he cleans the windshield, but the guy thinks he's just being weird and moves away from him. The total comes to $18, and they tell Nick to pay the guy, but he reminds them that they took his wallet, so they have to pay, technically. Yeah. Outside the bank, they give Nicholas a note and a gun. They tell him to flash the gun and hand over the note. At first, he tries to point it at them to demand his own release, but they inform him that the gun is not loaded. For some dumb reason, both of the other robbers enter the bank with him, Yeah, which seems counterintuitive to the whole plan of kidnapping a guy and forcing him to rob the bank. Well, I think they wanted to put pressure on him though to actually do it because if they didn't come in with me i would not i would just tell the teller whatever i wanted but why not just go in and rob the bank by yourself if you're going to be in the bank and seen because they look like just casual other people who happen to be in the bank who dragged the bank robber out with them and got into a car together and drove away well that is what happened that's not what they wanted to happen I don't needed, know what else they expected. I'm just to saying they needed to they needed to be in there to ensure that he actually went through with when it. When that guy got caught by the police and then the bomb blew up on him because he had a bomb strapped to him and they said you rob this bank or else we're going to set off the bomb. You never saw any other bank robbers in that real life situation. Yeah, but that the 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 thing the impending doom was strapped to him as opposed to in their hands. But they could very easily have said we're out here with guns on you through the window mm -hmm. of the bank. Do what we said or we'll kill you. I see 
I, I think the problem is that this is not a very well written <laughs> predicament. I don't know what they expected to go on here. The teller panics when she reads the note and she fills a bag with money. Before he leaves, Nicholas asks the teller to please inform the police that he had nothing to do with this robbery and even points out the men who planned it because they're here in the room with him. On his way out of the bank, he notices a huge camera pointed directly at him, getting a nice high-res picture to fax directly to the police. But also of the other two guys. Right. Which is a plot point that comes up way too late. Way later in the film. Well, they're only in the background, though. Sort of. He calls it the background. We see Robert Guillaume as Fred at the attorney general's office, receiving the photograph from fax and heading right into Charles Grodin as Ira J. Park's office with it. Now, that is one fine fax machine, I must say. The picture quality is incredible. Yeah, it's like it's like a perfect 8x10 glossy. Yeah. Ira is just getting off the phone with the governor, who he has invited to dinner next Tuesday, for pepperoni chicken. <laughs> <laughs> which i'd never heard of oh, and chicken, may not exist chicken pepperoni sorry is it chicken yeah. pepperoni i yeah. don't know i i googled it because i wanted to know if that was actually a dish and i found recipes mm -hmm. that but the recipes had pictures yeah. of this movie's well, DVD the one, the one it, that right? richard sent us had a had a picture of this movie in it but i saw other things that had chicken pepperoni in their titles and now is chicken those. pepperoni just pepperoni but made from chicken instead of no no, no it's, no, it's no, a cooked no. dish it's chicken of chicken with pepperoni and like sauce and but it looks like a chicken parm yeah oh, yes it does very much look like that yeah okay did, did you read the the recipe that i, I said I, I did not read the whole recipe no. it is it's all about the movie yeah it, it's it's all like the, taken from what they think was used in the movie to produce this recipe and then using an actual are they using some of the faulty recipe that he got from yes because the he includes the red wine and the pimento uh yeah like he like oh, that sounds terrible <laughs> well, yeah. no, it, i like pimento he, but yeah like like they the article was was like talking about this particular dish from this movie that's why it's yeah. called trying Aurora's. to reconstruct it from the yeah recipe that's why it's called aurora's no no i yeah i know the one you sent me had all that stuff in there i don't know who wasted their time doing uh, that. an amazing person <laughs> whoever it thank is you. i mean thank, thank you, you person. we appreciate it i know you found this episode the, the, this will go along with my failed experiment of the egg cream oh god yeah <laughs> don't do this you gonna one. make it you gonna bring it <laughs> you next gonna time? do it <laughs> <laughs> did you do it did you do it? That's the question. Did you do it? That's the killer from Schizoid, if you're not familiar. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do it. There's you did do the egg cream, though, I right? I did do the egg cream. Now, well, what does an of. egg cream consist of again? I'm blanking on that. Well, it, well, it's it was just like a YooHoo and club soda? Yeah, that's essentially it. It's just chocolate milk and, and, and club soda. Um, I, I used sparkling water, which I thought would be enough. Uh, it wasn't. It, it tasted a lot like a root beer float without the root beer. It had the vanilla, the chocolatey vanilla of yeah. ice cream, but no like root beer. Did you make flavor. the drink from uh, The Shining that they spill all over? Is oh, an avocado. Well, I don't drink avocado. alcohol. Yeah, I don't oh, drink okay. alcohol. So, so yes. <laughs> but you're supposed to like egg creams because you're from New York, right? <laughs> the only place where you know how to get a good egg cream, right? If you're I, a that's 19 year old writing a 40 year old, you love egg creams. Well, I just realized that most people don't know what we're talking about because they didn't. No one listened to the Falling in Love Again episode? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, fuck them. <laughs> Iris just getting off the phone with the governor, who he's invited to dinner next Tuesday for chicken pepperoni? Whatever that is. <laughs> <laughs> Got everything else. 
Once he hangs up, he tells Fred that he's all but guaranteed appointment to the attorney general position. So this isn't technically the attorney general's office yet, but it's about to be. Ira digs some cigars out of his desk, and he tries to split them with Fred and get his own wife on the phone until Fred stops him. He hands Ira the photo of Nicholas robbing a bank. It looks a little like my wife's first husband. Who is he? Your wife's first husband. Fred fills him in on all the details. Well, not all the details, just the very vague details of the case. More obvious details will come out later. Fred says he drove away with two guys, but they were smart enough not to get their picture taken. Seems impossible, though, because this camera was right above the door, and they all went through the same door for some reason. And they did get their picture taken. It turns out there's a plenty decent picture of these guys, too. (laughs) Well, one would imagine that it's not just a... A photograph camera like it's a video camera so you just pick but a different it's shooting frame. on like 70 millimeter film. <laughs> yeah it's like they <laughs> were pictures to... are gorgeous yeah but i'm just the saying cinematographer at this bank is they just stopped the, the film at the wrong frame yeah fred suggests that prosecuting his wife's first husband could be his first case as attorney general he points to nick's priors which include being arrested for smuggling drugs which iris seems to believe was a misunderstanding he thinks that it's it's at least possible that he was wrongfully accused of these crimes. But he went to jail for them. He did. Yeah. He served two years in a Mexican jail, not in America. He was yeah. prosecuted there and went to prison there. That doesn't count, right? Who knows? And two years is shorter in Mexico. Because you're closer, to, closer the to the equator. <laughs> <laughs> I know how you think, Richard. Oh, man. <laughs> Fred says he understands where Ira is coming from, but they work in a very conservative state. Isn't this California? <laughs> <laughs> California in the 80s. Remember yeah. Ronald Reagan was the governor. Were other states more liberal in the 80s? Wait, Ronald Reagan was governor of California, right? Yeah. I don't know. Was he governor when he got elected? Because he just got elected very recently. Yeah, two terms. 1967 to 71. So no, he was no longer governor. Do you want to know who the governor was? I'm sure it was... Uh, What's his name? Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown, yeah. He was governor forever. Jerry Brown was governor from 75 to 83. Okay. So, yeah, Jerry Brown. Well, he's not conservative. No. I returns to a framed photo of his wife, Glenda, and thanks her for the conundrum that he's in. Uh, I like when he, uh, Ira's asking what they're doing. The usual. Roadblocks, couple of helicopters, dogs, big dogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Very important that they're big. Uh, Guillaume... Uh, <laughs> is the way he says it big dogs like he's like really (laughs) impressed with the size of the dogs he doesn't even know how big the dogs are at ira's own house we cut right from here to ira's wife glenda in court working as a defense attorney on behalf of two native american gentlemen who are being released on probation and advised to pay the welfare department 326 dollars for the damage they did to their offices glenda asks what the judge would do if his welfare payments were withheld by the state for six months due to a clerical error, which I guess is what happened to these two gentlemen, implying that obviously you would take the money by force in their situation. The judge orders that they return in three weeks, gainfully employed, and Glenda assures him that she will see to that. We will learn later that that means that she plans to hire these people. It's like a nicer version of Steve McQueen and the hunter. Mm -hmm. Instead of being the bounty hunter who gives jobs to everyone that he caught, She's a defense attorney who gives jobs to everyone who needs a job to stay out of jail. On the steps outside the courthouse, she tries to set them up with jobs, but they don't seem qualified for much. 
As she gets to her car, Glenda is met by her chauffeur, Chester. How we do, boss? We want an overtime. And don't call me boss. Didn't you see Roots? This character is written so infuriatingly poorly that I cannot stand him. He's wearing a chauffeur hat, but it turns out he stole it from another chauffeur? It's clear that this is someone that she defended in court that she has hired as a chauffeur because he needed a job, but she doesn't need a chauffeur. Chester, the only reason I made you a chauffeur is to keep you from stealing. Why are you doing this to me? Because I want to be as good a chauffeur as I am a stealer. Nicholas is riding south on PCH with the bank robbers when they advise him to hop out whenever he feels like it. Eventually, they throw him out of the car and he rolls down a sand dune. But so they're on PCH already and then they throw him out of the car over some sand on the edge of the road. But then we cut to that top of that weird sand dune that goes up from PCH. Mm -hmm. So he's rolling down to uh, PCH also. The the road oh, below him is yeah. also PCH. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that sand dune. But in Malibu. About. Yeah or on the way to Santa Monica. As Chester pulls up to Glenda's house, she reprimands him for blowing a stop sign, and he says he doesn't like to read when he drives, and then immediately asks for a raise. It's not even really played like a joke that he's asking for a raise, despite how bad he is at the job, and she just tells him, oh, I'm sorry, I, I can't afford it right now. The same way she probably can't afford a chauffeur at all. Or afford six dogs and three cats and... Yeah. She tells Chester that she'll need a ride again at 8.15 in the morning. Inside the house, she is tackled by the six dogs. Her housekeeper, Aurora, is angry about all the pets that she has to take care of all day. They only had five dogs when she left, but it turns out that a stray moved in. Glenda deduces that this one is the one that peed on the floor on her way in, and Aurora says, you should see what he did on the stairs. Glenda heads upstairs to clean it up. Ira is on the phone with someone offering to rescind his application for the attorney general gig if anyone's uncomfortable with what happened regarding Glenda's former husband and this bank in Carmel. Ira tells Glenda that he needs to take her somewhere quiet so he can talk to her and suggests upstairs, kicking off the first of many moments in the film where Glenda has to coax him in another direction of the house to keep a secret from him. Even though they move outside specifically to get away from the sound of dogs, they leave the door wide open while all the dogs are barking inside. On the patio, Glenda is distracted from what Ira has to say by her corn having been eaten. Apparently she's been growing corn in this very small space in their backyard, and rabbits got to it last night. But how are rabbits getting to the tops of the stalks of corn? <laughs> and are they eating the whole thing, like down to the core? I don't know. Because there's nothing left of corn here. It's not like there's like a cob that's been eaten around. There's nothing at the top of this plant. I have no experience with corn and bunnies. I know that deer eat the corn. Like, Maybe this was deer. We don't know. It seems more likely that deer eat the corn. Yeah. She can't focus on what Ira has to say because she's so depressed about her corn. Honey, oh, Ira, Glenn, I could cry. What the hell with the corn? We could have gone to Europe for what it cost us to grow six lousy years of corn. Oh, please, I just want to I'm sorry. sit down, please. He tells her about the offer for the attorney general spot, and she's ecstatic for him. He follows this up with news that Nick robbed a bank. Glenda still doesn't believe the charges for drug trafficking, since she knew that he went down there to write a story about illegal immigration. Likewise, she does not believe that he would try to rob a bank. She asks Ira if it would upset him if she decided to defend Nicholas in court, and he says, well, I'd feel like that mess on the stairs, meaning he would feel like shit. He tells her there's another one under the blankets, and I, of course, assumed that he meant shit, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, he was right. talking about a dog. There's another dog <laughs> under the blanket with them. 
Glenda goes to sleep cuddling the dog, and we cut to a gas station in the middle of the night where Nicholas puts money into a vending machine and doesn't get his candy out of it. He starts banging on the machine with his empty gun until the proprietor comes out to shout at him. When the attendant sees that he's holding a gun, he assumes it's a stick-up and opens the machine for Nick, handing him any of the candy he wants from inside. Okay, pick him up. And nothing with peanut butter. I don't like peanut butter. You like Nestle's Crunch? Nestle's Crunch are good. I'm not a crook. I just want what I paid for. We don't have any milk duds. Uh, you like a Clark bar? Which is funny because I would say Clark is probably the most famous character that he's played. Yeah. But this is before all that. Uh, how about a crispy? Crispies are gross. A uh, Zagnut? Zagnut's good. Zagnut. Are crispies like the just, Nestle crunches? It's just, it's just a chocolate bar, but they saved chocolate by pouring rice into the chocolate. Well, crispies are, that's like the Nestle crunch, right? It's just chocolate with rice in it. They're called crispies. Okay. And they're not good. <laughs> Got them on Halloweens and I didn't like them. Okay. Too picky. He tells the attendant to count to 600 and walks away leaving a trail of candy bars he doesn't want. We cut to a party at Ira and Glenda's place where Chester is eating off of the tray of hors d'oeuvres that he's serving people. Excuse me. Could I interest you in some live bait? That's a joke from fooling around. Yeah, yeah. Glenda calls Chester out for eating so much of the food and he denies it even though his mouth is overflowing with the food and he can't even choke the words out. Again, it's not even played for laughs. It's just a guy lying bald-faced to a woman who offered him multiple jobs to keep him out of jail. Suddenly, one of the party guests starts screaming from upstairs where she opened a bedroom door and was attacked by a pack of wild dogs. Why Why are you going into their bedrooms upstairs? Well, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if you insist, yeah. I know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get what you deserve then, yeah, really, in my they're opinion. They're guard dogs, essentially. Glenda heads upstairs to check on the dog sitter that she hired from her own defendant clientele, and he's watching a boxing match on a small TV because his cousin is fighting. Glenda asks where one of the dogs is, and he says, oh yeah, that dog got out. <laughs> he didn't follow it or anything. He just, yeah, I just watched that dog open a door like a velociraptor <laughs> and then walk out. He turns back to the TV, and Glenda refuses to fire these people who don't seem to even want the jobs she's giving them. Glenda struggles to keep the dogs in the room as she leaves, and the dog sitter does nothing to help her. It seems like even the girls in the kitchen are not doing their jobs, yeah. as Ira is having to remind them to bring out various courses of the meal. Uh, Ira asks for clean glasses, and Aurora says something in Spanish, which I think she says, the jackass wants more clean glasses. And he says, but, I understood that. Because it sounds like she says, burra. Yeah. Um, or something along that lines. Like, I don't know. We didn't have subtitles. So I was trying to, I listened to it over and over again. But my, my guess was he was, she was saying the jackass needs more glasses. Yeah. And he comes in and says, yeah. It's like, I understood that. And Aurora goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Glenda heads outside to find the dog and encounters two police officers who I recalled to keep an eye on the place. They tell her that they heard the dog in the garage and she says that she'll send out sandwiches for them or something. Apparently, rich people just call the police before anything goes wrong. No, I think and... the expectation was that her ex-husband might show up. Oh, is that why they're there? I'm pretty sure that's why yeah. I called. Why would they called? assume that she would come to the ho- that he would come to the house? Because he just assumed that they that would be a place that he yeah, might I go for he help. Right. Yeah. And 
I think that there was enough high-profile people at this house that he wanted to make sure that everybody was good. I guess. In the garage, Glenda is grabbed by Nick, who surprises her with a hand over her mouth from behind. She bites his fingers until she realizes who it is. Why did you come here, of all places? Because I knew you were the one person in the world who could help me. I can't help you. Maybe it was somebody else I was thinking of. Some of the faces he makes here remind me that there was some talk probably 10 years ago about a Fletch reboot starring Jason Lee. And I think that's not a terrible match for back then. Mm -hmm. It probably wouldn't work now. Though, strangely enough, in the biopic about the creators of National Lampoon called A Futile and Stupid Gesture, Chevy Chase is played by his community co-star Joel McHale. And I actually think that that would work really well for a Fletch movie. Maybe a younger Ryan Reynolds would be a good Fletch. I think Ryan Reynolds has the attitude. Yeah. What you need to be able to do is the deadpan stuff. That's the hardest Mm -hmm. part of the Fletch character. Nick asks if he can stay the night in the garage here, and she tells him no, but eventually offers to bring him some food from the house. As she heads inside, Nick prepares to sleep in the backseat of a car until one of the Native American defendants and a younger woman from the kitchen wander into the garage and start to get it on in the back of this car. Nick sneaks out of the other side of the backseat unnoticed. I know this movie is only just kind of getting going. Yeah. But to me, everything should have happened at this party. Like the entirety of the movie should have occurred here. The, the fact that, that this running gag of hiding underneath things. this should Yeah, this should have been the dinner with the governor already. Yes. Like the, the entire yeah. night should have been her trying to hide him in various parts of the house with things going on and yeah. all this commotion and trying to move him around. Because uh, to, to me, that's that's funnier and more tense when we just when we literally have like two days of him hiding around the house it's too much and that he keeps coming back here instead of trying to make any progress ira asks where glenda is and chester can't answer because hilariously again his mouth is full of food glenda sneaks some leftover chicken and a six pack of beer out of the fridge and tells aurora to keep her whereabouts secret while she eats it outside aurora is bummed because she thought she'd eat this chicken tonight. Have you seen Mrs. Parks? She's not outside eating chicken, that's for sure. <laughs> She's a great liar. On the way to the garage, Glenda notices Conchita, the younger girl from the kitchen, and suggests that she get back to work because she shouldn't be out here. Si, senora. You shouldn't even be in the country. She jokes to us, which is like, wait a minute. <laughs> Are you a defendant for these yeah, people? Or you do you not side. give a shit? The cops notice Glenda carrying a plate of chicken and beer, and they take the food and drinks off of her hand in place of the sandwiches that she promised. Looking for Nick in the garage, Glenda stumbles upon the couple having sex in the back of a car and sends them back to the house. Nick appears from under the car. Which is unnecessary. Yeah, I don't know why he was hiding under the car. He could have been anywhere outside of it, and they wouldn't have seen him from inside of it. There's also another car. Yeah. Nick asks what food she found for him, and she says... I had chicken. You had chicken? You ate my chicken? No, the police took it away from me. They took away your chicken? You mean it was illegal chicken? They're guarding the house. Nick, there are a lot of important people in there. You can't stay here. They're going to find you for sure. You've got to go. He guilts her into letting him stay, and she offers to come back with food once more people have left. He smudges her face with oil or something from under the car, and she wears it back into the party until Ira notices and washes it off of her cheek. And I was waiting for that to pay off in any way, and it never does. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't pay off at all. Glenda keeps trying to sneak away on their way to the bedroom, and Ira keeps stopping her. 
At 2 a.m., she tries to roll out of bed, and he grabs for her hair. She tells him that she needs to do some work in the garden to keep the rabbits out. Like, why... Why that? Like, why not be like, I'm going to the bathroom. Go to sleep. Uh, Let yeah. me go. Big stinky dump, Ira. Leave me alone. <laughs> you want me to do it in the bed? <laughs> There's another shit in here. <laughs> yeah. There's another one in here under the blankets. She enters the kitchen to collect some food for Nick. When she finds him there, he's already inside and he's eating something. She asks him straight up if he actually robbed the bank. And he says, sort of. Sort of. What do you mean, sort of? I did, but I didn't enjoy it. Glenda says... She's going to talk to Ira about all of this because they don't keep secrets. But Nick pulls the empty gun on her and admits right away that it's empty. But for some reason, she still hears him out. She says she can't help him run away from the police because she doesn't want to break the law. Instead, he packs up a meal for himself and takes a bottle of wine before leaving. He points out how depressed all the dogs look because she won't let him stay here. Once he's outside, Glenda gives in to all the whining dogs and leaves to find him. She finds him like 10 feet away completely bizarrely wrapped in a hose yeah. like the lady from the boogeyman earlier this year <laughs> she gives him the option of staying in a room over the garage instead of leaving again when she gets back to bed ira asks if she'll be too tired to help him tomorrow he informs her that he has to clean out the room over the garage to make room for a campaign office when she wakes up in the morning he's already out of bed and she's worried that he already found nick we cut to Nick covered in shaving cream and opening scissors under his chin as if he were going to shave with them. Glenda barely catches Ira on his way to the room over the garage. Inside, Nick rolls under the bed to hide. When Ira moves inside, he starts sweeping dust under the bed right into Nick's face. Glenda enters and apologizes before she realizes she isn't in trouble yet. So, I'm, I'm confused. He, why does he need a campaign office? Because he's about to run for attorney general. Yeah. Okay, but I thought he was already getting the attorney general spot. I think he's being appointed or he's being considered for it, but maybe there is some sort of an election. I don't know. I Yeah, I don't really know how attorney generals work. Yeah, and, 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 and what is Attorneys wrong? Attorney's general. Sorry. Uh, it's one of those. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how attorney's general work. <laughs> I'll leave all that in. And what's wrong with his office that he has in the house? That's not good enough. Like th- this seems like it's like really out of the way and not ver- a very useful space. It's especially dusty too. Yeah, and low ceiling. Probably cold. It doesn't look mm-hmm. super insulated. Above the garage, they get all the fumes. Man, you guys are picky about your office spaces. About your campaign office spaces. <laughs> look, when I run, I'm gonna run for real. And he has an office in the city. Why can't he just use that office? We well, can't use your your current job office to run for your next office what if your boss found out wait didn't he tell his boss i don't know (laughs) his boss is the governor (laughs) that's true what is his current position she finds nick under the bed and tries to lure ira out of the room to talk eventually she admits that nick was the rabbit that she was chasing early this morning and that she has information on the robbery in carmel She agrees to share the information with Ira if he agrees to take custody of Nick until a trial date is set. Also, that if she's talking to Ira as her husband and not as the district attorney. Right. And she goes, fine, I'm Ira's husband. No, you're not. I can tell. (laughs) Yeah. You wouldn't be asking questions like this if you weren't the attorney general. Ira sits on the bed, crushing Nick underneath it, and Glenda races through her story of what happened in Carmel. When Ira stands, he steps on Nick's pinky finger and pins it to the floor as he recaps the whole story back to her. 
Ira demands again to know Nick's location, and when she refuses on behalf of her client, he steps out of the room and tells her that he won't be home for dinner tonight. Alone in the room together, Glenda and Nick talk about what went wrong with their marriage, and eventually, Glenda steps outside for a lecture with Aurora. This scene is super annoying. The information is delivered in a very memento-esque way, where we get the last bit first and then slowly step through it backwards. Aurora tells her that her court case this morning was pushed back because she has a new court case earlier in the day for the boys who punched a cop last night. What boys? The ones who busted up the welfare office. Robert and Thomas? When did they take a swing at a policeman? Last night when they caught him in the stolen car. What stolen car? Mr. Park's stolen car. They stole Mr. Park's car? Yeah, he says I'm now calling for the taxi. You could cut literally all of these sympathy hire characters out of the entire movie and it wouldn't affect anything. <laughs> As it stands, they're just cluttering up a story that might have made sense by itself. Well, they're just trying to make her a bleeding heart. but They are, but they're trying too hard because what is the message about these characters that she defends in court if they're all just like idiots? If they don't deserve it. Yeah, all yeah. of them are idiots who can't help but chronically screw up at the jobs you get them. Yeah. Is just the stick message with the that, dogs. The yeah. dogs, you know, the, you're like, oh, the dogs deserve yeah. love. It, and I get the point completely from just the dogs that this is a woman who thinks everyone deserves a chance and deserves a home. But these other people who could get jobs and take care of themselves, and she's just giving them their money as charity, even though they're terrible at all their jobs. It's just frustrating because I, I end up not liking the people because they're doing such terrible jobs and they're taking advantage of this woman. It seems like Neil Simon's message is that you shouldn't give these people jobs. They belong in jail because they're not good at jobs. They're just by nature not good at jobs. Yeah. Which is not true. <laughs> it's not a thing. Aurora asks if she still wants breakfast. Who cares about breakfast at a time like this? Eggs. Eggs. Bacon. Bacon. Waffles. Waffles. Toast. Toast. Coffee. Coffee. More eggs. More eggs. Thank you. Thank you. Glenda assures Nick that the boys who got arrested last night for punching a cop were just trying to borrow the car to collect their friend from the boxing match at the hospital. I'm not sure how you accidentally punch a cop while doing that. Aurora calls up to Glenda again to inform her that all six of the dogs have escaped. And what should I do? Hmm. <laughs> Go get the dogs and put them back in the room that they got out of. That's what you should do. But she just says, oh, it's fine. I'll just get six new dogs tonight. And Aurora's like, oh, man, now I feel stupid for letting all the dogs out on purpose. <laughs> Nick says he's going to leave to find the guys who forced him to rob the bank. But Glenda talks him into staying for at least the breakfast that he ordered and a bit of money to survive with. Glenda enters the kitchen and asks Aurora for some of the house money. Unfortunately, it's spent. I used it all on the foot doctor. The house money? I can't work the house with bad feet. So this lady has like money that she's supposed to use on the house for yeah. around the house expenses. And she used all of it to pay a doctor to scrape her feet. I don't even know what that means. I don't know what it means either, but it's just another brick in the wall of these, these characters not having any redeeming qualities. They're just taking advantage of this lady and they're all terrible at their jobs. Ira opens the door to a taxi that he has to take in place of his stolen car, and all six of the dogs jump into it. They bark for a couple seconds, and then they all get out again. It's a pointless joke. Like, she, like Glenda never even comes to collect them. The dogs just eventually get out because he asked them to. 
Aurora notices Nick coming out of the room above the garage and calls to him when he falls down the stairs. Aurora tells Glenda about the burglar and insists that he's dead because she saw him fall down the last five or six steps. When Aurora leads Glenda outside, Nick is already gone, but Glenda finds a note on the bed upstairs that says, There are some things a man just has to do by himself. This is not one of them, so I'm going for help. Oh, Nick. Crazy idiot. Glenda leaves with Chester for court. Halfway down the block, she realizes she left her case at home and tells Chester to back up to go get it. When she's alone in the car, suddenly Nick starts talking and she realizes he's been hiding in the back seat. When Chester gets back, they spend the entire drive to the courthouse reminding us what a shitty person Chester is and that he doesn't deserve the job he has. He asks if she's going to eat the breakfast that Aurora bagged up for her, and she says no, so he just says thank you like he knows it's his food now. She tells him to keep his eyes on the road, and he blows through a stop sign for the second time in two days, and she says, you just blew a stop sign, and he says, yeah, that's what I get for keeping my eyes on the road. They are immediately pulled over. She tells the cops that they're rushing the court, and he recognizes her from the chicken that she gave them the night before. It's the same cop from outside their place. He asks about the strange man lying in the back seat. <laughs> I I was really hoping that the scene was like I was like they have to be able to see him. Right. If if he goes unnoticed. But it's throughout... weird that Chester doesn't react to this at all. He's yeah. like, "Wait, what guy? Oh, yeah, there's a guy back there." Like he's not freaked out about it at all. He has no reaction. But Glenda says, "Oh, yeah, he's a victim of a hit and run and we're rushing him to the hospital now." Nick tells the cop his name is Harris J. Friedlander, that he's from Oxnard and that he works carving the heads of presidents out of driftwood. That's his official job. I really think we should get him to the hospital. Didn't you say you were rushing to get to court? After. After the hospital. This is the second time that we've told a cop that we were trying to get to a hospital when we weren't, and it backfired because the cop offers them an escort. <laughs> it's nine to five. Yes. Nine to five. Yes. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> Even though they have a police escort, a van somehow drives in between them and the police car and Chester very nearly crashes into it because he's not looking through the windshield in front of the car that he's driving. Nick starts urging Chester to turn off the road to lose the cops, but Glenda wants him to keep following. Nick uses the gun to convince Chester to follow his instructions and Glenda says, I'll give you a raise if you just keep following the police. Then Chester says, I better get a big raise and turns off the road. And it's like, no, that's what Nick wanted you to do. <laughs> you don't get a raise, you just don't get shot. But the whole time, Glenda could have said, there's no bullets in the gun. He told me that right. earlier. The cops suddenly realize that they've lost their tail. Nick steals the car from them, though they sort of just volunteer it to him since at least Glenda knows this gun has no bullets and they outnumber him. So mm -hmm. they could have just said, no, you get out of the car, you figure out where you're going. When Ira gets to work, Fred tells him that not only was his car stolen, but his wife's car was stolen by Nick on her way to court this morning. Fred tells him that the governor is also trying to reach him, and Ira says, please don't take those calls. In court, Glenda insists that the guys who stole her husband's car didn't steal it, they borrowed it. But someone reported this car stolen, or they wouldn't have been arrested. Right. Well, what probably happened was they were arrested with in possession of the car yeah and when they checked the registration it wasn't theirs yeah ira gets a ride home from the police and he finds glenda all dressed up in bed 
They discuss the events of the night before, and Glenda admits that Nick was under the bed in the room over the garage during their conversation. After a quick argument, Ira goes to sleep in the room over the garage by himself, and then he calls Glenda on the phone to invite her out there with him when he realizes he doesn't want to be alone. She comes out, and they lay on the small bed together, but when she falls off the side, she notices that Nick is back under the bed. For no reason insanely ira never checked down here and when she suddenly gets all jittery and weird he never for a second suspects that nick is back in the room again what so he stole her car where is that car did he bring it back we don't know because if he brought it back they would know he was going to be up here and if he didn't bring it back then he's not here yeah no idea wait Maybe they did mention that the car... Because is this this when the police officer drops him off? When the police officer drops him off, he says his car is back. Okay. Which is what they collected from the Native American guy who was arrested the night before. But if her car was back, that would mean that specifically Nick returned it. Right. And no one makes any comment to that effect. When she can't talk Ira out of leaving this room, she just starts crying until he leaves on his own. After Ira leaves, she threatens to call the police on Nick until he leaves. She calls the police and gives them her address and the details of the break-in, but when Nick leaves, she apologizes to Aurora for calling so late because she was pretending to call the police so that he would leave. Why did she need to call anybody? Just pick up the phone and pretend to call somebody. Nick steals Ira's car again to get out. But he already had the wife's car. Yeah, he has two cars at his disposal. (laughs) Glenda goes to speak with Ira and confess to everything that just happened now and then either pretend that she's having a breakdown or actually have a breakdown for the rest of the scene. But it's not clear because she just started crying in that room above the garage. So I don't know if this is more real than that scene, but she just is freaking out and having breathing problems. I I think she's actually having a breakdown based on what happens later in the movie. Yeah. The next morning, Chester honks his car horn twice and tells Ira that Glenda is late for court. Ira says she's not feeling well and she's staying home today. Chester says, oh, does that mean I get to stay home? And Ira says, no, you have to clean all the windows in the house because the governor's coming tonight. And Chester says, oh, if he's coming for dinner, he's not going to be looking out the windows. And he honks the horn again for just no reason at all. In the kitchen, Aurora is writing a letter to Ira and he asks what it says. So she just reads in the message. Apparently she's taking the day off because of a scheduled doctor's appointment that she decided not to mention until the day the governor was coming for dinner. She called some replacements and no one's available. So now the only woman who knows how to make chicken pepperoni is going to the doctor to get her feet scraped. And these two characters have somehow never heard of a catering service. So they're left with only one option. Be stupid. But also... If she's getting her feet scraped now, doesn't that mean that she didn't spend the house money yet? I think she paid the doctor in advance. Oh, okay. First of all. Second of all, leave a recipe or prepare the meal before you go. Why are you wasting time writing this letter? You should be preparing ingredients for the the meal that you said you were going to make. Apparently, chicken pepperoni is the governor's favorite, so there's no wiggle room here. They can't change the meal and they can't cancel the meal. Glenda will just have to learn how to make it. At work, we hear Ira on the phone with someone named Joe. Who's Joe? I don't know. He's calling someone named Joe, and he's asking for a recipe for chicken pepperoni, but it sounds like the recipe he's getting calls for veal, which is obviously a different animal, 
and Ira is disappointed by the recipe. Fred comes in and informs Ira that after some very rudimentary basic detective work, they've noticed other photographs of the crime scene (laughs) where the two characters are clearly dragging Nick out of the bank against his will. They've identified them as repeat offenders, bank robbers who force innocent people to hand tellers threatening notes each time. Fred suspects that this might be a hint that exactly what Nick said happened actually happened. But we already knew that the whole time. It's just for Ira to know now. At home, Ira finds Glenda in the kitchen experimenting with Aurora's recipe, which she finally found, but it's in Spanish. And she's come up with something that Ira's at least pretending to enjoy. Yeah. And people seem to enjoy it later, so I guess she figured it out. Yeah. It seems weird that there's there's no payoff to Aurora being gone. Yeah. Apparently, Glenda has made all the dogs sick with her practice runs on this recipe. They employ Chester as a waiter for the dinner, even though he's bad at literally everything and could not care less about doing everything wrong. The doorbell rings, and Chester doesn't even bother to answer it because he's too busy watching television. And then Iris says, why are you watching TV? And he says, because Glenda told me to watch the sauce. And he's like, okay, so why aren't you watching the sauce? Well, I'll watch it on the commercials. So he's not doing what she asked, and he's not letting people into the house. But Ira answers the door. And it's Fred and his wife. Just as the governor's limo pulls up, they close the door and Ira runs upstairs to wake Glenda because apparently she's just been sleeping off her panic attack. Chester's in the kitchen just getting drunk on wine and dumping it into the sauce. Outside the house, we see Nick sneaking by the governor's limousine as the chauffeur enjoys a hot cup of coffee, or I guess he's not really enjoying it no, at all. No, because he tosses it out the window. Because he dumps the whole thing out the driver's side window onto Nick as he's crawling by. Nick climbs a trellis on the outside of the house to a window on the second floor. As he tries to climb into the dog room, he gets knocked out the window and falls into a bush downstairs. But again, no reason for this. Yeah, Nobody the, finds him there. He doesn't still come in through this window. No, if he, if he his plan is to turn himself in, then just go walk in the front door, the door to the door or call the house from the we already established there's a phone in the room above the garage that you can call the house from. Call that house, explain what's going on. Now that the dogs are barking upstairs, Glenda stupidly asks Chester to quiet them. Instead of doing that, Chester just opens the door and lets them all run down into the house. The dinner guests take their seats around a table. To be fair, they stopped barking. (laughs) I guess. Yeah, there you go. It worked. The dinner guests all take their seats around a table and Chester chases the dogs into the kitchen and shouts the N-word at them to shut them up. And then he opens the door to let them all out of the house and into the neighborhood as a solution. In the process, he lets Nick into the kitchen. And Nick asks Chester to let Glenda know that he's here. When he does, she starts hyperventilating and sneaks away to the kitchen herself. She curses him out for coming back until he tells her that he's going to surrender himself. Though, it's kind of a stir-crazy situation because they've basically caught the two guys who actually robbed the bank. Right. So this is irrelevant now. Nick chases her around the kitchen, luring her back into a relationship with him, and eventually kisses her against her will over the kitchen island. Glenda heads back to the dinner table, and suddenly Chester is too sick to serve any food, like sick like drunk, because he's had too much wine. Nick puts on Chester's tuxedo and acts as a waiter for the next part of the meal. I I actually really like this bit, 
because Chevy Chase is so tall that he keeps kind of like banging everything. Like his arms are yeah. way too long to be like. What is getting... he like? He's like six two or six three, right? Yeah, he's huge, and he's so he's having trouble like maneuvering into all these little tight spaces. Yeah. When Glenda, Ira, and Fred realizes who the man is that's serving them in Chester's place, they all freak out individually, and this confuses the governor. They convince the governor that there's nothing to worry about, and he seems fairly impressed by Nick's waitering skills. When he leaves, the governor says, I would never take him for a button. I wouldn't either. At the next opportunity, Glenda, Ira, and Fred all leave to the kitchen to discuss what's going on, leaving the governor at the table with his wife and Fred's wife. In the kitchen, Ira knocks Nick out with a punch, and Glenda worries, who will serve coffee now? <laughs> For some reason, back at the table, Ira confesses everything to the governor. I guess he's just trying to be very straightforward. So as yeah. soon as he knows what's going on, he tells everything to the governor. And the governor seems intrigued at whatever the explanation is for why Glenda's ex-husband would be serving them here tonight when he's also a fugitive from the law for robbing a bank. Nick comes out again and asks Ira to join him in the kitchen, and he follows reluctantly. After a moment, we hear them fighting in the kitchen. Fred goes to break it up, and then Fred's wife goes to break it up, <laughs> and then the governor's wife leaves to break it up, and the governor's sitting there like, you notice I didn't get up? It's because I'm the governor. Yeah, it's very it's, calm. It's the greatest. It's it's my favorite line of the movie. It's like, yeah. you notice how I remain calm? That's because I'm the governor. Yeah, <laughs> that's why I voted for you, Stanley. Notice how I remain calm? I do that because I'm the governor. We kept from the dinner table to later that night after everyone's left. Why did we do that? <laughs> why did that happen? Glenda and Ira profess their love to each other before we cut to the courthouse the next day. Glenda's representing Nick and Ira is the prosecuting attorney. The judge takes note of this unusual situation, having husband and wife representing the defense and prosecution, and they explain that it's even more complicated than that because the defense is actually Glenda's ex-husband. They try to get some laughs out of relaying the entire plot of the film to the judge, and none of it's any funnier the second time than it was the first time. <laughs> A man enters the courtroom to whisper into the judge's ear, and he calls forward Nick, Ira, and Glenda to suggest that we focus on the bank robbing charges for this case. When everyone agrees to that, he calls for the bailiff to bring in the suspects, but as the door opens, impossibly, Aurora and all of the six dogs just happen to wander into the court where the captured suspects should be entering. It's all played out like a simple misunderstanding, but there's no reason that Aurora would be back there with all the dogs or that she would have ever gotten this far away from the house with all of them. The suspects are also brought in, and we take a while to get to them. First, we have to remind everyone in the court how funny it is that Aurora got her feet scraped, whatever that means. It turns out that Aurora was walking the dogs when the bank robbers grabbed her and six dogs, including like a St. Bernard. Like, yeah. why would you grab this woman of all people? And they pulled her into a car and said, you're going to rob a bank for us. The laugh track in this courtroom is really grating on me. Every time someone says something that was supposed to be a joke, the entire audience of the court starts laughing at it. The judge dismisses the case when Aurora's story matches up with Nick's and these two men are the likely bank robbers. I like Nick has a line. I think you and I ought to have a long talk tonight, Glenda. I look forward to it. Anything special you'd like for dinner? As if he's still going to be serving them. Yeah. At the bottom of the courthouse steps, Ira warns Nick away from continuing to see his wife. Fred shows up late and apologizes because someone stole his car. <laughs> Is this supposed to be another joke? <laughs> Should I know who stole this car? 
Was this just an excuse because Guillaume wasn't available the day that they were shooting the courtroom scenes and they were like, people are going to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Nick tries one last time to win Glenda over, but she loves Ira and they say their goodbyes. I actually appreciated that she goes back to Ira because right. Ira's been a pretty nice guy yeah. this whole time. Yeah. He hasn't done anything to overstep well, any boundaries. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. I, and I was so mad. I was like, it felt like it was pushing her to Nick. Yeah. And I was like, if you end up going with Nick after all of this, I'm going to be very upset. Yeah. Nick asks if he can kiss Glenda goodbye, and Ira says no, but they do it anyway. When they part ways, Nick whistles the theme to John Wayne's The High and the Mighty, 1954. <laughs> Amazingly, the movie's not over. <laughs> you see ira and glenda in bed talking about how they should take a vacation because they haven't done that in a while and they deserve one we cut right to them driving in the middle of nowhere during a rainstorm when suddenly there's a cow in the road a la motel hell yeah i was like oh god they're gonna get murdered and planted on the yeah. ground <laughs> farmer vincent hops out and turns them into sausage he turns them into chicken pepperonis what <laughs> i don't know they swerve off the road to avoid this cow and in the ensuing accident, Ira has apparently broken his leg, and he sends Glenda out to go find help, which reminded me also of falling in love again. Mm -hmm. When Elliot Gould is driving in the rain, and he's just being an asshole, yeah. and he makes his wife fix everything because yeah. he doesn't want to get out of the car in the rain. Glenda runs off to find help and comes to a cabin in the woods. She knocks on the door, and inside we see that this is Nick's cabin, though I might have saved the reveal for her perspective when the door opens. Mm -hmm. Seems like you're ruining it by showing him inside typing before he goes to answer the door. And then she smiles when she sees him open the door, and that's when it became clear to me that this was tagged onto the movie after a test screening where the audience wished Didn't that like. she ended up yeah. with Nick. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so producers suggested to make it more ambiguous. But that's the end of our film. Yeah. We freeze frame on her smiling in the rain when she sees that she's found Nick again. I think that there are a lot of moments in this movie that got genuine laughs out of me and that I thought were very witty and I the back and forth yeah. was a lot of fun. I agree that Richard laughed at that. No, I, I no, liked you, it too. I did. I laughed at it. You also heard me laughing from the yes. other room. There were moments that I yeah. laughed. But I'm not saying it wasn't funny at all. Yeah, But the, there's too many lull. The movie just takes a dip in the second act. Where it's just like back and forth. Pretending. He just keeps going back to the house. Yeah. And, and that's why I said earlier, like, this should have been all yeah. one day. I love your rewrite. I think that would have made this much better. Because I think all of the all of the key beats that we get from that point on in the movie could have been wedged into the party scene. Right. You know, the governor could have been at that party. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, all, all, of, all of the shenanigans with the husband finding out and then being sort of complicit in this, like all of that stuff could have occurred at the party. Yeah, like, there's there's no, it, it would be like if the out-of-towners took place over four days. It's like, why? Mm -hmm. Why did that happen? This could have been one night. Everything that happened. There's no, there's no scene that needed to take place at another location. Right. Yeah. And so you added all this extra garbage in there, establishing things that you didn't really need to. Yeah. Like, like how funny would it be that first she's trying to hide Nick from Ira around the house. Ira finally realizes he's here, but he can't do anything about it now because the governor's here. But then all of a sudden he sees him serving like drinks and Charles Grodin could pull that perfect like what the hell is going on face yeah. that he pulls. Yeah. Because uh, I love that look on Charles Grodin's face of like, what is happening? But I feel like since the original draft of it had her ending up with Ira, 
that they kind of toned down how angry he could get in this movie. Yeah. Like, I almost feel like I would have rather had it. Ira gets furious and is an asshole and mm. is yeah. in the wrong in a lot of mm-hmm. places. And then she ends up going back to Nick because it turns out that what she thought was a fuck up in the past was him being falsely accused of a crime. Right. And it turns out that he didn't actually do anything wrong. And yeah. that the, the, the seed of the ending of their relationship was a mistake. Yeah. But I think we've covered on this podcast that we're not huge Neil Simon fans at this point. <laughs> since the only two that we've covered have been disappointments. Yeah, I mean, I like a lot of his movies, but uh, you know, Murder as you guys know, Murder by Death is one of my favorites. Oh, that's and, a great one. Um, and The Cheap Detective, which was basically just taking Peter Falk's character and continuing it from Murder by Death, <laughs> yeah. which I love. But uh, it's the same character that he's played forever, though. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but th- this one was just messy. I feel. Yeah, it was messy, and I feel like the writing was really rough uh, in places. Uh, and I, I feel like it's a Neil Simon thing to have a character do something really irritating and wrong for the scene where you're just like, oh, God, this character's so annoying. Why would they do that? And it's like they, they actually wouldn't. That yeah. character wouldn't do that right here. Um, but they had to for the scene to keep going. And we do too many moments where it's like, hey, these four weird things happened in a row, which is just bad writing on my part. But now we're going to have this guy tell someone else the four things that happened in a row and it's like and it's funny because it's it was funny absurd. because of how crazy it was that yeah. it happened and it's like yeah but i didn't believe it the first time so it's not funny now hearing someone else react to it yeah the the whole exchange like all the scenes where chevy chase is like under duress like with the the two bank robbers in the car at the gas station the at the bank with the bank teller and uh even i even like when when um Goldie Hawn is having her breakdown and she keeps asking Charles Grodin for different things and he keeps trying to go and, and he's like, no, but don't go. And she goes, okay, I'm coming back. <laughs> oh God. I hated that scene. So oh, much. really? I, I thought, it, I thought it was cute because it's because it, because again, it's problematic because it's emphasizing how much he cares about her. Mm-hmm. And without- yeah, but I, I, it hurts me when the characters I'm supposed to sympathize with are so irrational that they're like, Go lock the door. No, don't lock the door. Stay by me. Oh, don't stay by me. You have to lock the door. And it's like, I, I, I hate this person. I can't, I can't sympathize with them. And this whole thing is their fault. And I don't know if she's pretending like when she cried in the garage earlier, or if this is a real like issue that she's having. Like, I don't know if she's just trying to keep him from going to the door. Cause she's worried he's going to notice something. And it was just, it just bothered me. Uh, honestly, I feel like Chevy Chase is the only person that pulls his weight completely throughout the movie. Yeah. Um, which is a rarity for me to say that Chevy Chase is my favorite part of a thing. There's only a few movies that I would say that about. Um, But here I feel like he's never not believable. And there's a few moments where I felt bad for Charles Grodin having to read the line that he reads. Yeah. Like where he's like in the courtroom, he makes the same joke twice Mm -hmm. where the, the judge says, Oh, these are your six dogs. And he says, Oh, well two of them are ours, but four of them aren't ours or something Mm -hmm. like that. And then like less than 30 seconds later he has to make a variation of the same joke again yeah and then the second time he says it the whole courtroom laughs and he has to like turn and look at the reaction and kind of laugh with them like yeah i guess that is kind of funny it's like no it's not neil simon it wasn't funny (laughs) it wasn't (laughs) funny 30 seconds ago it wasn't funny now and and there's even there's a moment too where chevy chases it has to laugh along with the audience laughing at the absurdity of the situation and it's like that doesn't make sense for his character he would have just been like i don't it's not funny. 
mm-hmm. this happened today. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know. I got really frustrated with this one, actually. Our director here was Jay Sandrich. He has lots and lots and lots of TV credits. This was his only feature directing credit that I could find, though. He did do 119 Mary Tyler Moores and 100 Cosby shows. He's also the son of Mark Sandrich, who directed Shall We Dance, Holiday Inn, and Top Hat. Writer Neil Simon wrote The Odd Couple, Murder by Death, The Goodbye Girl, also the original Out of Towners, which we covered for Patreon earlier this year. Our next Neil Simon credit comes from his play The Gingerbread Lady, which was adapted into Only When I Laugh for 1981. This is one of 11 co-productions between Simon and producer Ray Stark of Raster Films, who this year has worked on Somewhere in Time, It's My Turn, and this. Goldie Hawn was Glenda Parks. Her first major role was Tony Simmons in Cactus Flower. We saw her earlier this year in Private Benjamin. She's also in Overboard, Death Becomes Her. This is obviously her second role alongside Chevy Chase after Foul Play. And her first of two collaborations with Neil Simon before their Out of Towners reboot. She has now appeared as Mrs. Claus alongside real-life partner Kurt Russell in two installments of Netflix's Christmas Chronicles films. Chevy Chase played Nicholas Gardenia. This is his third appearance for the year after Caddyshack and Oh Heavenly Dog. We'll see him next year in Under the Rainbow for 81. Charles Grodin was Ira Parks. We've seen him thus far this year in Catch-22 for Patreon and It's My Turn for 1980. He'll be back next month for The Incredible Shrinking Woman and later next year in The Great Muppet Caper. This is Grodin's second of three collaborations with Neil Simon, after The Lonely Guy and before The Heartbreak Kid, and possibly Grodin's first collaboration with a St. Bernard. (laughs) (laughs) Robert Guillaume played Fred. He's Ted Reed, Meteor Man's father in Meteor Man. He is the voice of Rafiki in The Lion King. I mostly remember him as Isaac Jaffe from Aaron Sorkin's Sports Night. Uh, He's also Dr. Bennett in Big Fish. Uh, I love him from the Half-Life video game series. Where he oh, plays, he's the voice of the, yeah. He's the voice of Eli Vance. Uh, and uh, it's, I'm trying to think of what else. There was another thing. Which character is Eli Vance? Oh, so Eli Vance is one of the two scientists that survived from the uh, Black Mesa incident. Okay. Is he in the first game? He's in the first game. I don't know if he's still credited as Eli Vance. Yeah. But he's supposed to be the 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 two scientists that make it through into the Half Life Two are supposed to be the two scientists that you meet uh, earlier in the game. Are they the two guys outside of the chamber before the resonance cascade? Um, I don't remember because I I think I think both those guys are white, aren't they? I can't remember. Yeah, but he he is in there. His character's supposed to be in there. Is he the one where you find him after the explosion and he's like, Gordon, you're alive. Yes. I'm afraid to move and all our phones are out. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's supposed to be him. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, because it's the the two doctors and Barney all are all the characters that make it out. Gordon's alive. <laughs> that's another 1980 <laughs> reference. Harold Gould played Judge John Channing. He's Kid Twist in The Sting. He's Arthur Mendelssohn in Patch Adams. And he played Grandpa in the Freaky Friday remake. I'm assuming that's Jamie Lee Curtis's father. T.K. Carter was Chester. He's Knowles in The Thing. He was one of the doo-woppers earlier this year in Hollywood Nights. And we'll see him next in Underground Aces next month. And he's Mike. 
from Punky Brewster. Oh, was it? I couldn't remember his Punky Brewster Square Pegs. I no, remember you brought Brewster. that up last time. Yeah. He's a teacher at the school. Yeah. Math teacher or something? I don't know. He's just her teacher. Maybe I'm thinking of. I Bill. haven't seen it since I was a kid. <laughs> Bill Murray had a cameo as a teacher on the show. I think he might have Did been he? a math teacher. Judd Omen was Dex. He was Shima Luka in MacGyver's two-part Holy Rose episode that everyone remembers. <laughs> He's also Vlad in Howling 2, Your Sister Was a Werewolf. Yes, I'll say the full title every time. <laughs> he plays Mickey in Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Also, wasn't he also a bank robber? Uh, he cut the tags off of mattresses. Oh, well, that's what he, that's what he <laughs> told Pee-wee. I'm pretty sure that's what he actually did. I think that was the joke of the scene. I think you've taken it as a metaphor for slitting people's throats or something. <laughs> yeah. Like but the, I think the joke is that he literally did that and he's been on okay. the run. Uh, and but he's, one <laughs> foot long. <laughs> and uh, he also plays Jamis or Jamis in Dune. He's MacGyver as well. I said MacGyver first. Oh, you did it? Oh, Pay sorry. attention, Richard. I'm sorry. Mark Alimo played BG. Who's BG? What? Mark Alimo played oh, BG. Oh, first of all, Mark Alimo is great. And he's BG is the other robber. Uh, I don't. I didn't actually recognize him. But he's Everett in Total Recall. He's Lopez in Tango and Cash. And he's Gull Ducat in ah. Deep Space Nine. <laughs> Am I pronouncing that correctly? <laughs> Gull no, you Ducat. are not. <laughs> <laughs> I just... Said it as wrong as possible to watch Richard <laughs> shudder. Gold to cut. And he is one of the greatest Star Trek characters ever. Gold Ducat. Got it. Bill Zucker played the gas station attendant. He was Mr. Finkel in Ace Ventura. That's the father of Ray Finkel. You another one of them hard coffee guys. <laughs> He's also Mr. Menges or Menges in Critters 3. And earlier this year, he was Ace Landon in Hangar 18. Jerry Hauser played another gas station attendant. He's the voice of Sci-Fi on G.I. Joe. There's a character called Sci-Fi, apparently. Uh, he's also Killer Carlson in Slapshot. David Haskell played one of the policemen. Uh, his first role was John slash Judas in Godspell. And Chris Lemon played another policeman. He's Nick Merritt in The Wishmaster. He's a radio man in Airport 77. And he's the son of the star of our next film, Jack Lemon, Chris Lemon, Chris Lemon, ladies and gentlemen. Those are all the credits I had. Uh, I wanted to bring up uh, Yvonne Wilder, who played Aurora. Okay. Uh, she, uh, I, I mostly, I recognized her from West Side Story. Oh, okay. Uh, she's Consuelo in West Side Story. And there's a remake of that coming here pretty soon. Right? Spielberg directed. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Taking his time. Unnecessary. Yeah, it's redundant. It's a Spielberg movie. I'm going to make a movie that shows Lincoln in a good light. <laughs> Finally. I mean, the music's by Marvin Hamlish, which is pretty impressive. Isn't he kind of a package deal with Neil Simon or no? Yeah, but also I feel that this score was terrible. So I wasn't really wanting I don't, to You know, I thought that the first time I watched it, and then when I was re-watching it, I was singing along with it the whole time. <laughs> okay. like, I, like it got stuck in my head, every note of it. So, so, so like for The Sting, I totally agree. That music from The Sting gets in yeah. your head. Uh, but uh, I didn't think that this was any real special score. You know, I, I actually, I, I have to vouch for the score a little bit because I, right. I did find it a little catchy and uh, and I, it was more memorable than I expected when I was going through it the second time. Okay, so you did miss the editor. His name is Michael Stevenson. He has edited such wonderful things as, let's see, The Toy, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Nice. Honey, I Blew Up the Kids. 
three men and a little lady. Wait, is it blew up the kids or blew up the baby? Oh, honey, I blew up the kid. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Sorry, honey, I blew up the kid. Three men and a little lady. Uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Um, the Sandlot. Lots of good stuff in here. Ooh, Muppets from Space. Woof. <laughs> you said good stuff. <laughs> Cats and dogs. He was in the editorial department on Murder by Death, but wait, I, cats he wasn't and dogs. The is that the uh, Cyrano de Bergerac with uh, with um, Janine Garofalo? No, 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 no. no, no. no that's no. the that's, truth about cats and dogs. Yeah, no, cats, cats and dogs. dogs was the really bad like CG Talking movie in early two thousands. Yeah. Oh, okay, where and then like, they did the sequel with yeah, like Pussy cats Galore. from space or something like that. I don't remember. Yeah, don't what was no? What was they're the still cats they're still making cats and dogs movies? No, they're not. I think are they really? I think there's one that just came out. I remember when we worked at oh Kitty Galore I think is the name of the villain because we yeah. we we were working at Blockbuster when those two came out Cats and Dogs three Pause Unite twenty 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 so it took them how long was how long ago was two that was like twelve years ago yeah it was way long ago <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that uh, there's like didn't we talk about it earlier this year that um, Roger Moore or somebody played a character named Cat Lazenby. In uh oh, in, in Dogs and Cats too. Yeah, it was something like that. Or cats and Dogs too, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to bring up the uh, cinematographer only because um, he's got some interesting credits as far as uh, like connections to things that we've been watching. So like, uh, he was a cinematographer for Private Benjamin. Oh, yeah. interesting. Uh, but also for Foul Play. Which also had Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn. So that's probably where Goldie found him to use on her movie. And then they brought him along for her second outing with... Well, and then Only When I Laugh, which is which another, is another Neil Simon. Simon. Um, also Hero at Large. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, there was another one. Johnny Dangerously, which, I, which was... That one's for you. Man, I love that movie. Um, but also for me, My Science Project <laughs> in 1984. I don't know that one. I don't oh, know that one either. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> um it's basically i want to say i think it's an alien device that these bunch of like punk teens find and it opens up like crazy time portals so Um, it's like that uh that found footage movie where the kids get powers um no it's a lot more (laughs) random than that what is that movie called chronicle chronicle chronicle's good max landis yeah i liked it i like max Uh, landis's scripts i i don't think uh, from what I understand, he's not a great person, but uh, neither is his dad, and they both made pretty great movies. Yeah. Oh, but also Murder by Death, he was the DP. So, oh, okay. So that a lot of sense. Neil Simon, a lot of Goldie Hawn. Yeah. Man, Murder by Death is so great. Um. All right, folks. What are we thinking? Thumbs up, thumbs down. I think for me, this is a down. I don't know that I would tell anybody to watch this. I feel like that would be embarrassing. So that makes it a thumbs down. I do agree that there are funny moments. There were laugh out loud yeah. moments for me. Yeah. All of them were Chevy because unfortunately Charles Grodin doesn't get to do his thing here, which is yeah. to be really angry and be an asshole. Yeah, exactly. Um, although I, I have to admit there was definitely stuff from Goldie Hawn that made me laugh too. But I feel like she always has these scenes that force her to go completely overboard into crazy and then I don't I don't laugh at that as much as when she's just being silly. Yeah, I mean, I think she's as adorable as ever, but it was it wasn't a, a super believable character for me. And yeah. I, and I, that's not her fault. That's the writing. And not that I want to see 
any fewer people of color represented in 1980s films, but I feel like all these characters were so poorly written that I would have preferred it if she just had, like we said, a house overflowing with animals because she was super sympathetic that way. Right. So we do the opposite of what we did in The Hunter and we take all of the black people and replace them with dogs. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that makes it sound really terrible. Yes. Why couldn't they have just been good at their jobs? Why did the joke have to be that all these people she's helping do not deserve it? Yeah. And that being a public defender is a waste of time. Right. And it makes her seem like this pathetic, weak character. Right. Mm-hmm. As opposed make her to seem somebody like who's, a, you know, a caring individual who's smart. and Who's making the world a better place. Yeah. So it's a weird choice. But yeah, thumbs down for me. Uh, it's a thumbs down. I, I, I got some laughs, but... I I can't ever see watching this movie again and I I just they bring up so much stuff that doesn't pay like you're talking about no payoffs like the whole thing about him him writing this book that he's been away for two years writing a book but like wait a minute what, what is that what does that have to do? And there with are entire scenes that I left out of my, like usually my beat for beat is this shot and then this shot. Like I don't leave anything out. And there are huge scenes that like the whole courtroom scene at the end is like 25 minutes long and yeah. nothing happens in it other than them telling the judge the entire story yeah. of the film over again. Yeah. So there, yeah, there's so many things that don't, like you said, they don't pay off. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the movie, you're just like, why did that part happen? Was that setting something up? I mean, I feel like... Why does she have corn? Looking back on the movie, I agree with all these statements, and it's not it's not great, but it it wasn't that hard of a watch for me. Like, no, I, I agree. I, and I, I it's didn't also, struggle with it at all. It's like, what, an hour 40, yeah. something like that? Which is what a romantic comedy is supposed to be, between 90 and yeah. 100. It could have been better, but it wasn't infuriating like so many of the other right. movies that we've watched this it, year. It actually was... It was less difficult to finish than Out of Towners for me. Oh yeah, God, because I wanted to in walk that, away movie, from that movie, yeah, and and also just because nobody can outact Jack Lemon, so he's just so infuriating the whole time. Now that I think about it, that's probably why his son is the cop in here, because Jack Lemon is obviously mm-hmm. friends with Neil Simon, but um, he's just so high energy annoying for the entire movie Mm -hmm. and sandy dennis is just taking it the entire time yeah you just feel terrible but here they're at least annoying each other yeah so there's some give and take sure the movie started so strong that i was like oh god this movie's gonna be a laugh riot yeah like i thought at first i thought the plot was gonna be that he keeps being forced to commit all these bank robberies yeah that'd be great (laughs) and and a a weird bond that maybe forms with these these guys or something like I don't know I don't know where this movie's going but I'm excited to find out and then I was very disappointed yeah, they're <laughs> done they're, they're done with the crime part instantly but I, I did appreciate like a minute and a half into the movie it's like we've already robbed a bank I was like okay we're <laughs> off to a start um do we know where this is going letterboxed for you guys yet yeah I have it um it's kind of in the middle for the year. Um, not the best, not the worst. Uh, very, very similar to another Chevy Chase movie we had this year. Not the best, not the worst. I have it right above Oh Heavenly Dog. Okay. It is at the it is at the 85th place for the year, which is below Cheech and Chong's next movie. All right. Richard? Uh, I have a higher. Um, I have it at 61. 
uh, putting it below the competition, but above die laughing. Okay. Uh, I have it lower, um, but it's also pretty close to Oh Heavenly Dog. For me, that's Oh Heavenly Dog is 127. Whoa. So this is just a couple below that. It's at 129. Jeez. It's under Stir Crazy, and it's above Times Square. I think that's everything we have for Seems Like Old Times. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Tribute, which IMDb describes like so. A shallow Broadway press agent learns he is dying just as his son, by his ex-wife, arrives for a visit. (laughs) What? We leave you now with the trailer for Tribute. Before coming to the theater tonight, I did a lot of thinking about the guest of honor. A man I never really knew. My father. You see, he left home when I was still a kid. Was it that rough on you, John? It's just that I woke up one morning and you had gone. He never really took anything seriously. Anytime, anywhere. Morning, nurse. He'd do anything. Morning, my dear. Time for your physical. Hello, my doctor. No, I'm Dr. Cronkite. Your doctor wanted a second opinion just to make sure. It's funny. We never saw eye to eye, no matter what. But I'll take you to a joint on 42nd Street and you'll let you wrestle a naked lady. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't for you, kid. The last time I was there, they let me win two out of three falls. I don't know what he wanted in his son, but I'm pretty sure I wasn't it. I had an aunt once who said children ought to be like waffles. You should be able to throw the first one out. Everyone was crazy about him. I guess I was jealous, but I wanted to come first. Judge, you don't have to reach out to Scotty. He's got his arms out to the whole world. I'm not the whole world. I'm his son. I think he always knew how I felt. Okay, look, um, let's just say that I'm not the father that you always wanted, all right? Has it occurred to you that you are not the son that I always wanted? And the harder we tried to get along, the more we hurt each other. Do you know what you said about me last night? Where have you been for two solid years, kid? Isn't that funny? I haven't seen you rushing madly to keep your old man company, I'll tell you. You never insisted that I can. It was your choice. You shouldn't have given me a choice. Tonight may be the last chance we have to reach each other. And tonight, in front of all these people who love him and are gathered here to pay him tribute, I'm going to find out who he is. And he's going to find out about me. Jack Lemon. Robbie Benson. Tribute. Me and my brother Kyle here. We was walking down a long and lonesome road. All of a sudden, there shined a shiny demon in the middle of the road. And he said, Play the best song in the world, or I'll eat yourselves.
Did you so hit stop yet? Kyle, <laughs> we looked at each other. And we each said, okay. okay. <laughs> and we played the first thing that came to our heads. Just so happened to be the best song in the world. It was the best song in the world. Look into my eyes and it's easy to see. One and one make two. Two and one make three. It was destiny. Once every hundred thousand years or so, when the sun doth shine and the moon doth glow and the grass doth grow. Oh.